Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host today, Carl Nellis, and today we're talking with Larry D. Ferrero. He teaches history and engineering at George Mason University in Virginia and the Stevens Institute of Technology in New Jersey. Uh, Larry, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So today we're talking about your new book, Brothers at Arms, American Independence and the Men of France and Spain Who Saved It, out this month, uh, November 2016, from uh, Knopf. Congratulations on the publication of this book, Larry. Thank you. Before we get started talking about the book and, and the research that you've done, can you talk a little bit about what brought you to study and write on the American Revolution? Yes, I'm, um, uh, I come from a, a background in engineering, which is a little unusual for somebody who's writing about the history of the American Revolution. Yes, I'm actually a naval architect um, by background. I used to design warships for the U.S. Navy. Um, I also worked on warship designs. Um, in the French Navy and in the British Navies. What drew me to this subject was my doctoral research, which I did at Imperial College London, which was on uh, shipbuilding during the age of sail. Mm. So while I was doing my research in archives and uh, libraries all around Europe, I learned that France and Spain, which had fought Britain in the Seven Years' War, which we'll talk about in a little bit, Mm -hmm. um, had been badly defeated But after that defeat, they had decided to rebuild their Navy and do it together by sharing um, the shipbuilders and the engineers and the artillery engineers. And they did so to create a single unified Navy that together could fight to take out revenge against the British Mm -hmm. and regain their power. And I also learned that it was this unified Navy of France and Spain that together was critical to the overall American victory in the War of American Independence. So when my children were in school and I saw what their textbooks told them about the American Revolution, and I saw that those textbooks barely mentioned uh, the French participation in in the war and that Spain was completely absent. Right. Um, I began to wonder why there was this disconnect between what I knew and what I saw. And as I looked into the more modern works that were scholarly, um, I found that even if they talked about France or Spain separately, and, and some did, very rarely did they talk about how closely united they were both before and during the fight mm-hmm. or how much America really relied on their aid to win the war. Now, my agent, uh, Michelle Tesler, when I mentioned this to her, saw that there was a, this untold story, and she encouraged me to pursue it. So I spent a few years dragging my family to battlefields and encampments up and down um, the United States while um, <laughs> yeah. I was looking through archives in the United States and Europe. Um, I was fortunate enough to participate in some colloquia and symposia on the on the subject. Mm -hmm. And we're fortunate that so many of the archives that used to just be housed in in dusty rooms and and cartons 
uh, are now available uh, digitally online yes. or uh, that you can request uh, just by an email. And so with all of that, plus the fact that I, over the years, developed a number of connections in the United States, France, and Spain, a um, number of historians, I was able to fill in all these blanks. Mm-hmm. And the result of that was Brothers at Arms. I have to say, I'm really impressed by the way that you wrote this book and wove together history of engineering or history of science and uh, the history of diplomacy, political history, with economic history, with military history, uh, and even with a little social history here and there, and told it in such a compelling narrative way. Um, I was really impressed by the writing. Uh, sometimes I was laughing. I was just enjoying reading the book. And at the same time, um, I really respect the depth of scholarship here. I mean, the the resources that you talk about consulting and, and the, the extent of your notes demonstrate really the serious work that you put into telling this story. Well, thank you so much. I hope, I hope uh, your listeners and uh, other readers will enjoy it just as much. Can we jump in and start talking about uh, the book as you've written it? Yes, I am. Um, I'll start with the, the, the overall argument, the, the thesis of the book, and then mm-hmm. uh, I'll talk about each chapter, um, you know, take you through the, the, the narrative um, yeah. as I build the story. Um, as I said earlier, what I had found looking at the, the current scholarship is that uh, France and Spain were uh, rarely, if ever, treated as the inseparable alliance that they truly were. And that's what I was aiming to do in Brothers at Arms. But most importantly, what I was trying to do from the beginning was describe how and why they were involved um, from their points of view right. um, and why they decided to support the American cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah, France and Spain together had actually been involved in the War of American Independence before the first shots were even fired at Lexington and Concord, uh, even before the Americans themselves knew that the American Revolution was going to lead to war. They were at America's side, not just from the beginning, but throughout the war. Mm -hmm. And by the time America had secured its independence in 1783, uh, France and Spain together had supplied over 90% of the guns used by the Americans uh, and over $30 billion equivalent today in aid. More importantly, they were as fully engaged in the war as was the United States. Um, by the end, there were over 200,000 French and Spanish soldiers and sailors who fought in the war compared with uh, between 250,000 and 380,000 Americans. So a very comparable mm-hmm. um, commitment to this cause. Yes. So in fact, and this is the point I um, bring out both at the, you know, throughout and at the very end, uh, the United States could never have won the war without France. Right. And France could never have succeeded in the war without Spain. And one of the points you make is um, that the American diplomats, the American soldiers, were, were very, very aware of this. And uh, and you start in a really interesting way, I think, by positioning the Declaration of Independence in relation to its intended audience. And you make an argument that by looking at the Declaration of Independence and some statements that were made about it and made around it, uh, by Jefferson, by Adams, that there was a clear connection with some arguments made in Common Sense by Thomas Paine, yeah. and that the intended audience was clearly France and Spain. Can you talk about how we get to that point? 
Absolutely. And that's what I, uh, and that's, you're absolutely right. That's how I start the book in the introduction. And, and I started by pointing out that the founding fathers in their, in their, um, in their writings and, and the things they've left us, they're very clear that the Continental Congress had authorized the Declaration of Independence as a call for help to France and Spain. Um, it was um, an idea that Thomas Paine, as you said, first brought up in common sense. And common sense did several things. It, it didn't just argue that um, Americans needed to be independent, but also called for a document, and his words were, to be dispatched to foreign courts. And he specifically mm-hmm. says France and Spain um, that declared America to be a sovereign nation as the way to get assistance from uh, France and Spain. And, and he wanted that document to let them know that the ensuing war was not going to be a civil war, which they would never participate in, but rather was going to be a war between independent nations. Mm-hmm. So what I say is that the declaration wasn't addressed to King George III. Uh, he, he already got the memo. He knew that the rebellion had been carried out in order to, in his words, establish an independent empire. Right. And it wasn't addressed to the colonists themselves. By this time, in early 1776, shortly after Common Sense um, was distributed, they were sending their uh, representatives to the Continental Congress uh, specifically to uh, debate the, the cause of independence, and they knew it was time to separate from the mother country. Mm-hmm. No other nation had ever written down in, in a formal document that it was independent. They didn't need to. Right. They would fight the war. Famously, the Dutch Republic had fought um, 80 years to eventually throw off Spanish rule. Nations that had fought uh, declared independence by winning the war. So the idea of a formal declaration was unheard of. Mm-hmm. In fact, they specifically knew that this document was going to be the, um, the way to bring France and Spain in to help them in a war that they knew they could not win. When they started to fight the war in 1776, well, 1775, but it really uh, ramped up by 76, they had no Navy. Mm-hmm. They had no artillery or almost none. And they are ragtag army and militia um, had few guns and were bereft even of the most basic ingredient of warfare, gunpowder. Mm-hmm. So they knew that only France and Spain, who were the historical enemies of Britain, had both the motive to fight the British and also had the naval and military strength to potentially defeat them. Mm-hmm. And before we could ask for their assistance, we would have to be seen as a sovereign nation. Right. So Thomas Jefferson, and I'm going to quote both Jefferson and Adams, because I think what they say makes the case, Thomas Jefferson said in his notes that a declaration of independence alone would allow European powers to treat with us. John Adams, who was never a fan of foreign entanglements, has said uh, foreign powers could not be expected to acknowledge us till we had acknowledged ourselves as an independent nation. Mm-hmm. So, again, to emphasize this Declaration of Independence really was an engraved invitation to France and Spain, asking them to come fight alongside of us. And that's why I say in the introduction that the document wasn't just the Declaration of Independence, but also a declaration that we depend on France Mm -hmm. and Spain too. Mm -hmm. And as you've just said, these two nations had 
the motivation to support an independent America in a war against Britain. And that's where you jump into the first chapter and say to understand where that motivation comes from, we need to go back to the Seven Years' War. Yes, and, and the first, and, and that's the chapter of the Road to War, uh, describes what actually led to the revolution and eventually to the war. Mm-hmm. And, and it did spring, as you said, from the Seven Years' War, which the Americans um, referred to as the French and Indian War. That's right. Now, that war started in 1754, and it was a series of skirmishes for control of the Ohio Valley uh, between the French and the British forces. But those skirmishes very quickly led to a war that engulfed continental Europe, brought in many more nations other than France and Britain, and eventually um, spanned the globe. And the turning point uh, came in 1759. This is when Britain, Britain, which was the dominant naval power, began a, a, a series of victories that could only be called stunning um, at sea and on land. And eventually, they decimated the French and Spanish forces uh, in, in both, uh, both domains. So by the time there was a peace treaty in 1763, mm-hmm. the British victory was complete. They were the dominant global power. France lost Canada, Spain lost Florida, and uh, both lost uh, power in their respective spheres of influence. Mm-hmm. So the Americans knew after that war, because they had fought in that war, that France and Spain were, were spoiling for revenge against Great Britain. And actually, that's exactly the way the French described it. They, they used the term revanche, yeah. revenge, as their strategy. And, and they knew that um, France and Spain were already closely tied uh, by a family alliance, which was called the Bourbon Family Compact. And it was called that because both the French crown and the Spanish crown were descended from Louis XIV. Mm-hmm. So that Bourbon family compact um, said that each nation would come to the aid of the other. And because it was a family tie, sometimes it was a question of the King of France writing, you know, dear cousin uh, to the King of Spain. <laughs> or vice right, versa. Right. Now, France and Spain both had very specific goals in this policy of revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, France was always interested uh, not in gaining back a lot of territory. It had lost Canada and it was not going to recover it but it did want to regain its position as the dominant power in Europe. Spain had a different set of goals. Spain wanted territory. It wanted to regain Florida so that it could regain control over the Gulf of Mexico, which was critical for a lot of its military and its uh, economic um, well-being. The the treasure fleets Mm -hmm. would go through the Gulf of Mexico um, from their sources in Peru and South America to get to Spain. It also wanted to eventually recover Gibraltar, which was a critical uh, peninsula at the south of um, Spain, which overlooked the Mediterranean, therefore guarding a crucial um, transit point, which Britain had captured uh, many, many years earlier, uh, probably about about 70 years before that. Britain wanted to hold on to that for its strategic reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. So both France and Spain knew that Britain, after the Seven Years' War, had a tenuous uh, hold on its American colonies. Mm-hmm. And they, 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 they saw that the Americans themselves would eventually rebel against British rule. And one of the things that I came across was astonishingly prescient. Um, the French foreign minister, Choiseul, had said in one of his letters um, to Grimaldi, his Spanish counterpart, 
um, only the future American Revolution will consign England to a state of weakness. And he said that in 1767. Mm. That's eight years before the Americans even knew they would be at war, and he already saw mm-hmm. uh, not the possible future American Revolution, but the definitive American Revolution. Mm-hmm. And they were able to to do so because they sent people, um, spies and observers, yes. to take the pulse of the colonies um, throughout the period from the Seven Years' War all the way to um, the when the, the outbreak of the war. And it was those reports that came back that, that gave them the idea that eventually when this American Revolution did happen, that they would be able to use it as a way to weaken Britain and eventually defeat it and regain the power and territory that they had lost. Yeah, and I love this chapter of the book because you also talk about, well, not just the spies that were in um, the colonies, but also the spies they sent to England. And you talk about some of their personalities and their work. And so it's almost a kind of an espionage chapter, though you also describe similarly in, in 1767, the invasion plan that they developed for England. Can you talk about that a little bit? When, when um, France and Spain um, lost the war, they knew that the way to get Revenge was to actually descend. That was the term used at the time <laughs> right. on the um, on the British Isle, um, not necessarily to take territory, but uh, by holding certain key places, um, mostly the port cities, places like Portsmouth, and um, driving the British economy uh, into the ground. They would be able to sue for peace with conditions such as the recovery of Gibraltar. Mm-hmm in mind. So they had sent, uh, almost before the ink was dry on the peace treaty of 1763, they were sending um, spies and observers throughout England to map out locations for an invasion, to uh, estimate the size of the British Navy, and so on. So this became the centerpiece of the plan that France and Spain developed. The second part of that plan was to develop a unified Navy. And this is the part that I had actually looked at in, in great detail during my uh, doctoral research. Mm-hmm. Um, they had exchanged, as I mentioned, uh, engineers um, for in shipbuilding and artillery engineers uh, and with the express goal of creating a single unified Navy. So <clears throat> by the time the, the war was going to break out, they assumed that it would take about five to seven years before they would uh, be able to fight a war. Mm-hmm. There were other intervening political considerations that prevented them from doing so early, but the timing was almost impeccable because when the Americans decided that they were going to separate from Britain starting in about 1774, 1775, mm-hmm. both the French and the Spanish navies uh, had been built up sufficiently that they would within a very short amount of time, uh, outnumber the British. The infrastructure was in place. They were building up the manning so that they could actually take on the British. Mm -hmm. So the American Revolution came at just the right time for the French and Spanish revenge. Right. And the other piece of the legacy of the Seven Years' War that sets the stage for the War of American Independence is financial. You talk about how... The systems of taxation that, you know, we, we talk about causing unrest in the colonies was an attempt by the British to service their war debt from the Seven Years' War. Um, yes, they, they were actually uh, 
uh, intending to tax the colonies not so much to service the debt as as to pay for um, the ongoing need to protect the colonists. And there okay. were actually um, several uh, things that, that that happened over the intervening years. Uh, the taxes themselves, as it happens, were not um, overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the average British citizen at the time was being taxed in the British Isles at the rate of about the equivalent of about $200 per year. Um, <laughs> right. And the, the Americans were being asked to pay about 20th of that. So the taxes themselves to pay, to pay for British troops and so on were not overwhelming. But there were other economic factors that were leading the colonists um, further and further away from wanting to be a, an integral part of the British Empire and do things more on their own. First, they did not believe that Parliament had the right to tax them. They, they felt that their own assemblies had the right to tax them. Mm-hmm. Even though they were saying no taxation without representation, they also knew that if they were, had just a few representatives in the Parliament, they would almost invariably be outvoted. Right. So that really wasn't going to be a solution, even though that was proposed several times. Probably the, <clears throat> the fact that the British had some uh, a set of what were called the Navigation Acts, and, they, and this came in many different forms, that strictly controlled the colonists' ability to trade uh, outside of very prescribed um, areas mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Was, was one of the biggest factors. They, they, they weren't allowed to send manufactured goods back to England. They could all, only send raw goods. Right. If they wanted to trade with another nation, even with the Caribbean, which was right next door, they couldn't do so unless those goods went to England. And then usually uh, the fear, which was probably um, more reality than, than fantasy, was that the British merchants would pay one rate and then resell it at a different rate. Yep. And the Americans were losing out. Right. George Washington, um, for example, was, was trying to sell, always tried to sell a lot of his products from his plantation, Mount Vernon, to uh, the Caribbean. And he, he was going through a lot of different um, agricultural products. Mm-hmm. America was quite rich in, in, in those terms. They, right. The actual income of the, of the Americans at the time was the highest in the world, higher, higher even on average than the, uh, than the British. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, so it was, it was not an economic hardship question as much as it was the idea that the British were preventing the further expansion of the Americans income and also their expansion territorially. Uh, they certainly saw the, the places beyond the Appalachian Mountains as theirs. The British Crown wanted to keep a, um, a, a line at the Appalachians to allow the Native American nations to have the territory that they had promised. Mm-hmm. And the American colonists saw that land as their own. So a number of factors right. eventually led to the Americans boiling over with resentment and eventually leading to the first the revolution and then the war. Yeah. Yeah. In the next few chapters of the book, you talk about the different sorts of people, uh, the different sorts of French and Spanish involvement in the war. And I think what you just said about Washington and trade uh, really sets us up nicely to talk about the next chapter. Um, the next four chapters of the book are merchants, ministers, soldiers, and sailors. And you start with the merchants. Can you talk a little bit about why we start with the merchants and who some of those key French merchants were that played a role in the war? Yeah, at first, as I had mentioned, the, the Americans had uh, almost nothing in their 
uh, grass that would allow them to fight mm-hmm. Britain. They didn't have the manufacturing capability because they were not allowed to export manufactured products. Right. As I mentioned, they didn't have a navy, they didn't have artillery. Even Benjamin Franklin had said uh, the army had not five rounds of powder a man. The world wondered that we so seldom fired a cannon, we could not afford it. Mm. So all the things that you know you need to wage war were simply unavailable uh, as the conflict broke out. Right. And we did not have the manufacturing capability to provide those those munitions or weapons. We didn't have any gunpowder factories. Right. We had very few gunsmiths, and even the gunsmiths we had were um, individuals uh, making perhaps one or two guns a month, mm. and they were doing it by hand. By contrast, the British factories were producing for the British Army um, hundreds of thousands of muskets turned out in mass production facilities in places like Manchester and London and Birmingham Mm -hmm. every single year. So instead of looking to provide all these weapons locally, they were going to use their agricultural surplus to uh, buy all of the weapons that the militia and then eventually the Continental Army needed from overseas. And they did so using their smuggling connections. You know, I mentioned that uh, the American colonists were uh, trying to avoid the British uh, restrictions on trade mm-hmm. by smuggling goods and uh, out to their uh, Dutch colonies, in particular some of the French colonies, so that they uh, uh, Danish colonies in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. and sometimes to Europe. Well, these smuggling operations were perfect for trying to uh, and and eventually succeeding in smuggling guns and, and gunpowder uh, in exchange for agricultural products, notably. Tobacco and cod; those were the the, the uh, most important items of trade, mm-hmm. and this was important um, because they were uh, able to at least promise to pay for it. But with the war continuing and British blockades, uh, the actual ability to provide the the weapons and and gunpowder and pay for them was being uh, squeezed. Mm-hmm. So in 1776, the French and Spanish governments, which, as I mentioned, had been watching these developments and knew that the war that the Americans were engaged with, with the British, was eventually going to weaken Britain, mm-hmm. started to fund a series of covert operations that they, they funded. They eventually expected to be self-funding, but they began using merchants um, such as uh, Diego de Gardoqui, uh, who was in Spain, who had a long relationship with New England uh, cod merchants and smuggled muskets, who smuggled gunpowder mm-hmm. and uh, articles of clothing. And in France, there was a playwright who turned a uh, businessman named Pierre Caron Beaumarchais. Uh, Pierre Caron de Beaumarchais is very famous for being uh, the author of the Figaro plays, The uh, Barber of Seville. Mm. And uh, both the French and the Spanish governments used those merchants to hide the source of the arms, um, although, quite frankly, the British were never fooled as to where those arms and munitions were, com- were coming from. Right. But at that time, in 1776, they did not want to get into open warfare with Britain. They simply weren't ready. Mm-hmm. Um, so a series of cat-and-mouse games were played between the uh, between the merchants, the governments, 
and the British spies, which were everywhere, mm -hmm. um, in order to get those arms to America. Now, as I mentioned, ultimately, these weapons accounted for, uh, that came from, from France and Spain, accounted for uh, over 90% of all the guns used. Mm -hmm. and, and they were present uh, very early in the war. Probably the, the most important shipment, which was one that was done by uh, Beaumarchais, uh, he uh, independently outfitted and sent across the ocean a, a fleet of five ships. Eventually, it became 40 ships throughout the war. Mm -hmm. But five ships arrived in April 1777, uh, equipped with or, or sorry, carrying about 20,000 muskets, uh, plus uh, cannon, plus gunpowder. And uh, these arrived just in time. They were sent immediately to New York and New England uh, to equip the, the soldiers, which were at this time fighting the British troops under General Burgoyne. Uh, up and down New York and the Hudson Valley, mm -hmm. and they'd been losing badly. But by the time they were able to get these weapons, which was in the late summer, they were able to, for the first time, use those weapons to turn the tide of battle. And the Battle of Saratoga, which was fought in September, was fought with um, those Balmarche arms. And the Americans themselves said um, in, a, in written statements, that uh, without the Beaumarchais arms, the British under Burgoyne would have easily made, mm -hmm. defeated them, made a march to Albany, and eventually cut the entire Continental Army in two. So the weapons that had arrived from France and Spain were uh, allowing the Americans to stave off defeat mm -hmm. in the early part of the war, and at the Battle of Saratoga, gave them a stunning victory that put America back into the fight and had other effects which I explain in the, the next chapters. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, they, they, they most certainly kept the Americans from losing and at the, just the right time allowed them to actually win. Yeah, and in that next chapter, you are able to jump from, from that discussion of the economics and, and, and the trade, um, the arms trade, to talk about the way that the European politics shaped the involvement of, of France and Spain in the war. And as you said earlier, really how they were serving their own interests. You talk about how uh, Louis XVI and Carlos III uh, in France and Spain, respectively, established new governments and how they saw this war for independence, and the, they saw potential there for, for pursuing the interests of their new governments. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yes, the next chapter is called The Ministers, and it's about the men who were at the center of power. And as you said, the, the important thing to remember about this whole conflict is that uh, France and Spain uh, were helping the Americans in their war against Britain, but they were always acting in their own national interest. And mm -hmm. that's true of any nation at any time. Right. right. But when we talk about the War of American Independence, and we talk about France and Spain, we, we often lose sight of the fact that they were doing it for their own reasons, that our interests actually, at this point, aligned. Mm -hmm. um, and as I mentioned earlier, that there was a very specific French interest, and that was to tilt the European balance of power away from Britain and back in France's favor. And that guided every single thing that they did. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in France, certainly, that, that foreign policy was being drawn up more by uh, the ministers than it was by the king. Uh, 
when King Louis the Sixteenth came to power, he was he was pretty young, and and this occurred just at the time that the revolution was turning into a war. Mm-hmm. So being young, he still did not have the the acumen to fully understand uh, what was happening in the world and how it would affect France. So he leaned very heavily on his foreign minister, the Comte de Vergen, uh, to develop the strategy. And the Comte de Vergen is by far the single most important character in this entire story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, He developed the the strategy. He made the decisions. None of the um, things that we often impute to people who are much more visible, people like Lafayette, Right. Um, really had a lot of effect on how and why France um, decided to enter the war, wage the war, carry out the assistance. Um, this all came from a very clear-sighted uh, understanding of France's primary interests by the Comte de Vergen. Now, he had been a minister in various courts around Europe for most of his career. Mm-hmm. He had actually spent very little time in France itself. So he had a very wide view of how, for example, Britain, Russia, Austria, Spain, and the other uh, powers in Europe played against each other. And he was always trying to balance keeping his allies um, with him and his potential enemies in check. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's rather telling that one of the most important developments in Europe at the time of the American Revolution uh, uh, was beginning, was a the invasion by Russia of what at the time was the Ottoman uh, Empire's territory in the Crimea. Yes, yes. And the Ottoman Empire was a, a French ally, and uh, this caused a lot of consternation uh, at the time. Uh, yes, we we all recognize the echoes today. So he was always balancing. Um, how to keep his uh, European uh, interests in line with what he was doing in America and making certain that the resources that he was sending to America, be it arms, money, people, soldiers, sailors, Mm -hmm. um, was always balanced by what he needed in, in, in Europe. Now, he made those key decisions like, as I said, sending the arms and munitions to America, sending Navy, uh, sending the army. His counterpart in Spain was the Conde de Florida Blanca, and he was the chief minister to Spain's king, Carlos III, who uh, worked more hand-in-hand because he was a much more experienced ruler. He'd actually mm-hmm. been king as long as Louis XVI had been alive. So uh, together... Uh, they, plus their other ministers, uh, developed the overall Spanish strategy, which was, as I mentioned, uh, regaining Gibraltar as their first and foremost priority, and also driving the British from the territories that they occupied around the Gulf of Mexico, uh, most notably Florida. Mm-hmm. And it, it really becomes clear in late 1777, when America, just before the war uh, uh, sorry, just before the Battle of Saratoga was was at one of its lowest points. It was becoming clear to both Virgen and Florida Blanca that that war uh, was was likely to be lost. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the problem for them was that if the war were lost, and it was almost certainly going to be lost, even with all the arms and munitions that were being supplied, right. 
without the direct intervention of France, certainly, and, and Spain, um, Britain would win. They would reunite uh, in that empire. And then that reunited British empire in North America would then threaten the economically vital Caribbean sugar colonies mm-hmm. of France and Spain. That's really where they made most of their money. Yeah. So Virgin, by late 1777, had already decided that America needed more direct help to stop this from happening. Mm-hmm. And when the Americans won at, at Saratoga, which was a surprise, he'd already made the decision that um, he was going to ally with the Americans. It's just that the Battle of Saratoga gave him the pretext to do so. Mm-hmm. So again, just to be very clear, if you read most American histories, it says the Battle of Saratoga was critical. A, it was the most lopsided victory of the Americans against the British uh, up to that point, which was true. Yeah. And B, it brought France into the war. That's only partly true because it doesn't take into account that Vergennes had already made that decision. Mm, yeah. He wanted to do so with Spain. The problem was Spain in So he signed the treaty in 1778, I think it was uh, February in 1778, um, that they were able to go through the negotiations after receiving word, uh, only about two months had passed. Spain was always going to be part of this enterprise, but at that time, it also had a treasure fleet still at sea. Mm -hmm. And that treasure fleet was carrying the equivalent, uh, today's equivalent of about 50 billion with a B dollars in silver. And Spain simply could not risk joining in a war with France against Britain, having the British threaten that silver convoy, which turned out to be the very last of the great Peru silver convoys, Mm. um, until that convoy was actually safely in Spain. Once that convoy was in port late in the year, Spain was then able to uh, enter the war alongside France, Mm -hmm. although Again, because it had very specific interests, those did not include align with um, the United States. So even though they didn't never they never did align with the United States directly, mm-hmm. they always made a condition of the, their uh, peace with Britain as Britain's recognition of the independence of America. Right, and as you as you noted earlier. When that recognition that just sending the arms and sending finances to, to the colonies wasn't going to be enough, Vergen decides to commit troops. And uh, your next two chapters, Soldiers and Sailors, um, goes into some of those people that were sent, the roles they played. And you tell a lot more stories than the ones we hear, uh, like you said earlier, about Lafayette or Rochambeau. Yes. And at first, uh, the... Troops who came over, the volunteers, uh, were doing so independently without uh, direct government uh, knowledge or intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, the very first volunteers who came, and they came from all over Europe, by the way. I think it's important to to note that um, the Italian states, German states, Poland, Hungary, um, they were all um, the homelands of people who decided that they wanted to go fight for this great cause of liberty. Mm -hmm. But France was by far the source of the vast majority. At that time, everybody had different reasons for volunteering to fight in a foreign war, which is the same as today. If you look at uh, examples of Americans going to fight during the uh, 
uh, Spanish Civil War, the, uh, the, the Second World War, uh, they had different reasons to do so. Now, most of the people who came to fight in America came to fight the British. Mm-hmm. Um, some came to fight for the United States, and these were not the same things. Right. Uh, the French volunteers, by and large, saw the same thing that their ministers and their, their king wanted, which was a rematch with the British. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as the war progressed, they, they saw the cause and eventually made that cause their own. Right. The, the very earliest volunteers didn't come from France itself. Even though they were French volunteers, they actually came from the French Caribbean and from Canada. And many of them came even before independence itself was declared. Mm-hmm. Um, I found one particular in- individual who uh, I have just found absolutely fascinating and appears in almost every chapter in my book. Um, his name was Antoine Felix Weibert, and he came from the Caribbean, and he was the first officer to be commissioned um, by the Continental Congress in June 1776 under the name of the United States of America. It's actually the first time in a written document, his, his commissioning letter, mm-hmm. that, the, that the name United States of America appears. He went on to fight um, with Washington in the battles around New York. Um, He went to fight at sea with John Paul Jones. And in between, he was captured and paroled three separate times by the British. Afterwards, he stayed in America. Uh, He lived in Philadelphia, married, divorced, remarried. He became a prominent abolitionist after the war. He was kind of the Forrest Gump (laughs) of the American Revolution. Um, And after the Declaration, the volunteers started to arrive by the shipload. In 1776 and uh, early 77, it started to become a problem because Mm. Washington and Congress didn't have money to pay them. Right. um, And they certainly didn't have room in their ranks and their officer ranks to just slot them in because it would mean that you were displacing other American officers. So they really didn't know what to do with them. But at just this time, the British marched on Philadelphia uh, mm-hmm. and Washington decided uh, that he had to make a stand and he chose to make that stand at the Battle of Brandywine. Yes. And it was at that Battle of Brandywine that many of these French and European officers who up to this point had been pushed off and, and treated as, as so many spies in our camp, that was Nathaniel Green's quote, participated in the battle and actually fought so bravely um, they made the newspapers. And after that point, uh, the Congress and Washington both changed their minds, and they then became the, uh, the indispensable officers who, um, as uh, the, the musical Hamilton says, were the immigrants <laughs> who, who got the job done. Right, right. And on, on the French side, um, a few of these individuals, you mentioned uh, Louis Lebec Duporte. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was one of several engineers that was sent um, specifically by Vergen at the request of the Americans. When you're fighting a war against uh, a British army, the, the, the concept that a lot of people have often uh, romantically referred to as uh, Minutemen firing from behind trees, was never accurate, never accurately represented the way armies fought. It, mm-hmm. it was always a question of seizing land, taking uh, strategic sites, holding sites. Yeah. These were all the province of engineers who were trained to lay siege, defend against sieges, 
bring up heavy artillery. This is the way you won a war. And Washington knew this. Yeah. Um, he'd fought in the Seven Years' War. He'd studied um, how militaries fought. And he also knew that there were no engineers to be had in America. And so he specifically uh, sent requests overseas for engineers and artillery engineers. And France returned the favor by bringing uh, several people under the, under the leadership of Duporte. Mm-hmm. Duporte was Washington's chief engineer. He very quickly uh, saw that uh, this was a man who understood warfare, not just from a a tactical sense, but also from a strategic sense, Mm -hmm. meaning that uh, if you are going to carry out a battle, you have to have your strategic and logistic uh, um, support behind you and around you in order to do so. Duporte was able to advise Washington Mm -hmm on all of those considerations. For example, um, the decision as to whether to attack directly um, into Philadelphia to drive the British out or not. Duporte wisely decided that if you, uh, if they were uh, trying to uh, drive the British out and they were surrounded, that would cut off and destroy their army bringing the entire war to an end. And Duporte's question was the very question Washington himself had continually asked. Yeah. Um, to what extent do we want to um, risk our entire army on victory when the potential of defeat could actually stop us in our tracks? So right. Washington saw a man who thought like him, but also could put it into um, strategic terms. Washington depended upon Duporte to lay out the encampment at Valley Forge when they decided that they um, needed to stay close to Philadelphia. And Duporte laid out a series of fortifications that were so strong that even though the British forces were only about 20 miles away, they never actually attempted to uh, attack the Valley Forge encampment because they knew it was so well fortified. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It depended upon um, another uh, emigre, uh, uh, Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben. He was a baron who'd come through the graces of the French army. And you have to understand at the time that it was quite common for um, soldiers from one army to work in another army. Mm-hmm. And even though the Americans typically would call them mercenaries, that really belittles the contributions that they, that they made. Quite frequently, they were fighting not for money, but for the kind of glory that a the soldier of a nation would would fight for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, these men, uh, Stroben, for example, was the person who put together the training plan that Washington needed to turn his Continental Army, uh, who didn't fully understand how to maneuver and marching formation, and within the space of of a winter, train up a very large contingent to stand and fight uh, the British, which they proved time and again in battles after uh, Scheuben had taken over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His favorite officer, of course, was the Marquis de Lafayette. Yes. And um, Lafayette, although a very junior officer, um, very quickly learned the art of war. And what I always found very interesting is that Washington, with his French officers, often found himself able to either accept or express emotions and 
uh, affection that he would never do with his American officers. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was famously not known as the man that uh, no American officer would ever slap on his back. But time and again, you read accounts of Lafayette and other French officers embracing Washington or in, in many other ways, just expressing emotion and him expressing emotion back mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. he would never open up in the same way to the American officers. Yes. Now, the Spanish were different. Um, you know, the, the French were, by 1778, allied with the Americans. There were soldiers fighting in, uh, alongside. The Spanish were always going to be uh, a separate unit. They were going to fight, but they were going to fight independently, and they were going to fight for what they were looking uh, to achieve, which was the eventual capture of the British uh, in Florida. Yep. So Bernardo de Galvez was the governor of Louisiana. He'd already been, at, at a very young age, uh, battle-hardened both in campaigns in Spain and uh, around Europe, as well as in the Amer- what what is today the American Southwest, mm-hmm. uh, at the time was the vice royalty of New Spain. Um, he was a battle-hardened soldier. He he was he led his troops first in helping to resupply the Americans in the Western Theater before Spain had declared war on Britain. So many uh, supplies went from his capital, which was New Orleans, uh, up the Mississippi and to the American Theater, which was primarily centered around Fort Pitt, today's Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. But when war was declared between Spain and Britain in 1779, he quickly mobilized his troops and he planned a series of lightning raids that would capture British cities along the Gulf Coast and on the Mississippi and eventually uh, the British capital of Pensacola. Mm-hmm. So uh, within days, he was able to march on and capture uh, Natchez and Baton Rouge. Some, some months later, he marched on and after a fairly short siege, captured Mobile. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did so primarily with his own troops from Spain and, and the Spanish colonies, although there were some Americans who volunteered alongside mm-hmm. under the um, leadership of Oliver Pollock, who was actually a, a merchant, an American merchant working in, in New Orleans. But these were all being carried out completely independently of anything that Philadelphia was, was directing. Right. Um, he wanted to attack Pensacola almost directly, but a series of hurricanes prevented that, and uh, it wasn't until uh, somewhat later that he was able to uh, carry that out. Right. Can you talk about Galvez's actions at Pensacola that really demonstrate the way that France was reliant on Spain for their action and how that contributed to what we consider to be one of the decisive actions of the American War for Independence at Yorktown. Yes, in 1780, uh, the the American campaigns were almost at their lowest point. Alexander Hamilton was so uh, uh, despaired so greatly that he wrote the words, if we are saved, France and Spain must save us. And it was at just this time that Bernardo Galvez was planning his uh, uh, campaign that would help to lead to that final battle at Yorktown. Mm-hmm. When he had finished capturing Baton Rouge, Natchez, and Mobile, uh, and wanted to march on Pensacola. Uh, he was originally waylaid by a hurricane. But the following year, um, after the damage to the, his invasion fleet had been repaired, he and a, a Spanish admiral 
Jose Solano, uh, led a force of almost 20,000 soldiers and sailors from both France and Spain. Uh, and they laid siege to the British capital of Pensacola. That siege, in, which occurred in, from February to May 1781, ended when a, a very lucky shot from a howitzer detonated a magazine. The French and Spanish soldiers overran the fort. And at that point, British Florida was turned uh, over to Spain. Mm-hmm. Well, that meant that Spain now controlled the Gulf of Mexico. Yes. And at just that time in 1781, a fleet of uh, warships and soldiers from France under the leadership of the Comte de Grasse had arrived in the West Indies. And he was going to be able to commit just a few months to supporting Washington and his French counterpart who had arrived the year before, the General Rochambeau. Mm-hmm. But he didn't have, uh, he didn't want to leave the French Caribbean unguarded against potential British attacks. So Spain offered to protect the French colonies while Comte de Grasse was away. And that's exactly uh, the agreement that, that, that they came to. De Grasse was able to take his entire fleet north to the Chesapeake. And because his entire fleet was there, uh, surrounding Cornwallis, who by this time was at Yorktown and had Lafayette uh, on one side, while they were waiting for Washington and Rochambeau to come down mm-hmm. to spring the trap, the Grasse's fleet was offloading troops and ammunition when the British fleet under Thomas Graves appeared off the mouth of the Chesapeake. Mm-hmm. De Grasse was able to sortie his entire fleet, defeat or drive off Graves, and keep the circle around Yorktown without the British being able to either resupply or extract Cornwallis. Now, right. um, if the Spanish had not allowed de Grasse to take his entire fleet north, it's not clear that that action would have been successful. The, the end game uh, at Yorktown was a joint French and, and American affair. They had made a quick march from New York south and surrounded Cornwallis. And as the siege began in early October and uh, which only lasted about 10 days, the French and the American troops were working together, but the siege was directed by French officers. Mm-hmm. The actual direction of the uh, artillery was done by the French. The French had the majority of troops. They had the majority of the weapons. And during the course of this battle, twice as many French soldiers died mm. as Americans. Mm-hmm. So when the British surrendered um, October 19th, uh, it was Cornwallis' second-in-command, Charles O'Hara, who came out to offer the surrender. He saw it as a French victory, right? which is why, when he came out, he famously turned to Rochambeau to offer the surrender. Rochambeau knew this was a French victory, but he knew the moment belonged to Washington. Yes. So he pointed to Washington. Washington pointed to his own second-in-command, Benjamin Lincoln, and that's who accepted the surrender. Right, right. There's so much in the book that... That we, that we just don't have time to cover here. Um, there's so many detailed stories about the, these collaborations between uh, the colonists and the French and the Spanish. Can we maybe just jump to the end and talk about uh, some of the ramifications of those collaborations and in particular the ways in which even after action in the colonies ended, that didn't end the conflict for Spain and France and Britain. 
and then maybe talk about what some of the legacy of those international collaborations, uh, what that legacy has been. That's right, because Yorktown really wasn't the end of the war. Uh, by the time uh, it was fought in 1781, the, the British were fighting five separate nation states across the globe. Mm-hmm. It really was a global war by this point. In addition to France and Spain and the United States, they had also uh, the British had also drawn the Dutch Republic into the war because they were provisioning France, mm-hmm. and they had vicious battles in the North Sea. They were also fighting the French and the Spanish in the Caribbean, and there was a running war between the British and the French alliance um, with the Kingdom of Mysore in India, which France was also trying to convince to eventually expel Britain in the same way that the French were trying to convince the Americans to expel Britain. They wanted mm-hmm. to have the same kind of Indian revolution as the American revolution. So at the end, it wasn't the battle of Yorktown that, that uh, defeated the British. It's just that the British were overwhelmed. Yes. Um, they had no allies. They were fighting five separate nation states. Um, their economy was, was slowly being uh, strangled and they were exhausted militarily, politically, and economically. Yes. So the final peace, which was signed in September of 1783, occurred just as the war, the news of the end of the war was, was uh, reaching uh, the far-flung places in, uh, in India and, and the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And the end of the war, um, the, and, and those peace treaties gave America almost everything it wanted, independence, land concessions from Britain. Uh, They really came out ahead. Spain also came out ahead in that they recovered Florida and almost every territory that they wanted except Gibraltar. Mm, France um, never wanted territory. They always wanted to achieve uh, dominance in Europe. And they did for a short period of time. But they inflicted upon themselves their own French Revolution, which occurred just a few years after the American Revolution. Yes. And it was much more to do with uh, the problems uh, that had been around for many years in the social and fiscal structures of the French state right. than the debt that they had occurred from the Americans. During that French Revolution and the ensuing um, wars, many French uh, aristocrats and families came to America and Americans adopted them, and they also adopted the things and the ideas that they brought with them. Um, America's West Point, for example, the military academy, mm-hmm. was a French idea that came over. Uh, America's uh, system of mass producing first arms, and then eventually the rest of uh, the Industrial Revolution economy, originally came from France. Right. So we were able to adapt and adopt many of the things that uh, those people had, had brought over. And since that point, um, we, uh, we, the Americans and France and Spain have had a, uh, a tumultuous relationship. There's no question. We've right. had wars with them. Right. Um, we've also had many friendships. And, and what I say at the very end is that uh, we, as our interests align, um, we've become allies and uh, with our oldest brothers mm. uh, at arms. And so what I want to end my story with and what I try to leave my readers with is the understanding that, as I said, that myth that Americans bootstrap themselves from colony to independence 
by themselves was was never correct, never a good fit. France and Spain were with us from the beginning, and that the real story mm-hmm. of um, American independence is that we were born as a centerpiece of an international coalition. Yes. Which worked together to defeat a common adversary. And I say that America, which is exceptional, has always been exceptional when it has returned to those roots and leads a coalition of nations in pursuit of a common good. Mm. Mm. Again, there's a lot, a lot more in the book that we weren't able to cover. Um, your, your research is so meticulous and your writing is uh, so fun to read. I hope that um, anyone interested in this period or thinking about it in relation to, as you said, to today, um, we'll go ahead and pick it up. Um, what can we be anticipating from, from your work in the future? Are you working on anything now? I'm doing a few things. Uh, I mentioned that I'm a naval architect and my initial, my first book was on the, the history of shipbuilding uh, during the age of sail. I'm working on its sequel, which will uh, bring it up to through the industrial age and, and mm-hmm. to today. Mm-hmm. So that's one work I'm, um, I'm contemplating. And as an engineer, I'm, I've always been interested in the intersection between engineering, society, and politics. Mm-hmm. And with the uh, advent of information and, uh, as we discussed offline, software, I'm much more interested, very interested in, in examining how uh, complex engineering uh, can adapt to those these new uh, issues and concerns in the 21st century. So that's the second project. And the third project, uh, also involving politics, is something that I've uh, observed uh, in some of the ideas of the development of human evolution, mm. uh, specifically altruism, genetic altruism versus genetic selfishness, and the rise of uh, political parties. So these are three projects that I have uh, sitting on my desk on various bookshelves and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and, and, and on the floor from time to time that uh, I hope to have uh, produced in the near future. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, Larry, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, for talking about your work. It's really been a pleasure to have you and to read the book. I'm just so grateful that you uh, came and talked with us. You're very welcome. It's been my pleasure.